0: Adam Kinsinger is the author of a book called renegade it is his autobiography uh welcome congressman Kinsinger. yeah thanks
1: good to be with you and good to be with all these handsome faces I'm
0: seeing around tell us about the aircraft behind you uh the picture on your right you're in the cockpit there an open air cockpit and then um I think that is a uh Surveillance aircraft that, that you might've flown, um, during your reserve duty. Tell us about those planes. And yeah.
1: So part- actually the, the military plane, let me see if I have it here that I flew. Uh, it's basically a big version of this. This is a Merlin 300. And that is actually, I own that. Well, I own this model, of course, cause I'm holding it, but I own the actual real aircraft that this is based on. It's a, I just bought it about a year ago and, uh, It's fast. It's like a 300 knot airplane. And uh, it's awesome. You know, it's expensive to fly. So I don't get to fly it as much as I did like when I had a small Mooney. Uh, But it's awesome because if I need to get somewhere, I can get there quickly and take the entire family. And then over here, this, by the way, this picture is me and Jamie Herrera-Butler. We're high-fiving each other on our way to um, actually vote to impeach Trump. And there was an AP reporter or one of those reporters that take pictures all the time that took a picture of us and uh, we didn't know they were there. So that was like an organic high five. And so that's a great picture. And then over here is me and it's Congressman Steve Graves. He, or not Steve Graves, Sam Graves. He always does a, uh, an air show. He basically lives on an airport and uh, he's probably the only guy that loves flying more than me and uh, in Congress. And so I'd go to his air show every year and we went up and flew in, That's his T-6. So that was like a trainer in World War II. If you start flying like World War II vintage aircraft, you basically have to get a bunch of hours in that and become an expert in formation and everything to then go on to maybe fly like the P-51 or anything else. So I haven't gotten into that yet. I hope someday to do that, it's through the uh, commemorative Air Force, but I got to get more time and I got to get more tailwheel experience, even though I've got like, I don't know, 6,000 hours flying or something like that. But yeah, the military version is just, that plane, just a little bit longer and bigger wings, and it's got a bunch of cool equipment on it that that spies on people, but not Americans, just bad guys.
0: And you also flew refueling tankers, which are the planes that service a fighter jet in air, it lowers the boom, the plane flies up, connects to it, and fills up the gas tanks while in flight.
1: Yeah, it's uh, – and by the way, hi to some of the Illinois folks I'm seeing pop up. Um, yeah, so I flew the KC-135. I did that for about – including training about two years, and uh, that was a fantastic plane. I actually – I remember I was over Iraq at one point uh, out of uh, Qatar, and, uh, and I just looked down because, you know, those refuelers, you're flying at like 25,000 feet. You're out of weapons range of, you know, if, if you're fighting against a country that's not like Russia or China – And I just remember looking down and being like, I want to do something like more in the dirt. So I flew that with, you know, for a couple of years. It's great, great aircraft, great mission, but I wanted a different mission. So in 07, I actually became dual qualified, which is very rare in the Air Force. So I got the dual qualified in the RC-26, which is what I finished out my career in. And then also the KC-135. So I actually flew both for a year and then uh, went full-time on the the, uh, RC-26. With that, I went to... Iraq, Afghanistan. Hey, normal Illinois. I went to Iraq, Afghanistan, um, all over the world. I mean, in both those planes, it was great. And the RC-26 as well, we would do domestic missions. So I said, we don't spy on you. We didn't, unless you were a bad guy running from the police or dealing drugs, we would have an agent on board to make it, uh, since we're National Guard, it, it complies with posse comitatus. And we would actually help local law enforcement track down drug dealers. We worked the border a bunch, which is actually why I'm pretty aggressive on the border because I saw it firsthand. Uh, it's a mess. And uh, so it's been great. And I miss it. I'm sad that I had to retire. You know, it's, it's, it is, I got 22 years in or whatever, but yeah, it's uh it was uh, it goes by in a flash as, as everybody knows, 20 years goes by pretty quick. You,
0: you have been outspoken and critical of Donald Trump and, Um, I think share my view that it'd be a catastrophe were he to return to the presidency. Uh, We were talking about the military. You spent 22 years in, you flew the entire time, you retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. There is military news tonight. A captain in the United States Navy, who is the commander of a ballistic missile submarine, uh, was relieved of duty. The Navy Uh, Simply makes the announcement, says that they didn't meet the standard, comes out that 48 hours prior, he was arrested, charged with a DWI offense and driving without insurance outside the gates, 53 years old. Uh, This is one of the Navy's most highly trained officers, uh, commander of a ballistic missile submarine. He makes a character mistake, and there is no second chance at that, at that level. He pays the full price. What is it that has gone off the rails in American politics, in your estimation, where the character defects are celebrated uh, while punishment is imposed? Uh, it seems to me more often than not bottom up, and I'm not trying to uh, victimize or um, to allow a Navy captain who did that, who commanded a ship like that to claim victimization. But what, what has gone wrong and off the rails in the society? Um, you know, one thing we share is we're both Gen Xers um, and I just find it constantly and perpetually bewildering. Yeah, I mean, it's a
1: great point. You know, it's, it's I mean, I remember you know, in pilot training, and well, my entire time as a pilot, not just pilot training, but particularly then, it gets hammered into us, look, you know, you get a DUI, you're gonna, you're done flying. And if you're lucky, you can stay in the military, if you're a young officer, and they've got a place for you, but you'll, you'll never make it past major, you may end up being security forces or something like that. And, uh, you know, and and we accepted it. I mean, you know, I can tell stories where people kind of got a, uh, the shaft a few times that they shouldn't have. But, you know, we accepted that, you know, when you, when you take an oath, particularly to protect America and, and, you know, not just fly a weapon, but employ weapons against human beings, that you have to put yourself at a different standard. I mean, look at even just airline pilots, right? They, uh, they're allowed to drink alcohol, but they have to stop at a certain point. And if they show up to the gate with, I think it's above 0.005 or something like that in their system, they're going to lose their job for United American or whatever else. There's there's a, a standard we put on everybody. And I think the founding fathers intended a standard on politicians. I think they assumed, and they assumed rightly for 250 years, that politicians you know, what would shift out, what would sift out the bad ones, the ones without character is the election system, right? I mean, if somebody has no character and it's found out, typically they lose an election, typically they're they're shamed, whatever. That was the system. So while if you're an elected official, you don't really have a boss, the boss is the people and the people are the ones that can execute that punishment. What's happened, Steve, and I know you know this well, and by the way, I've got to say to you just because I'm thinking of it and I don't forget you're the, you're the purveyor of country first, the idea of it and the message uh, I know with McCain and my organization is called Country First. So you own that. And I want to thank you for bringing that the word and message forward um, from the inception. So uh, I want to give you credit for that. It's important. But on, the, on, the, on the, the character side with leader. So what Donald Trump has done well, okay? What he's done well is he's convinced people that he is a big Billy badass, right? That he is, he's standing in this gap for you. When he says crazy things on Twitter, it's not because he's crazy, it's because he's outraged for you. And that's what people think. That's what people have been convinced. Um, They've been convinced that he is tough. The truth of the matter is, he's the whiniest, littlest, self-absorbest, Self-absorbedist, whatever that word is, he's the the most biggest like sissy whiner. It's exhausting and it's annoying. And but he has convinced people through his anger and his whatever that he's this tough guy. So they will take his character flaws, and say he's got that flawed character. Yes, but what we love about him is he's not going to let the left bully him into shame. I mean, his what. What is it we always say is great superpower is shamelessness. And so that's what's happened. That's what I've been saying lately, particularly, and I put this on Substack, I think, today, which is look, Joe Biden, one of the things I think he can do to take out Donald Trump is instead of saying I'm scared to death of him, you know, or I'm I'm worried about democracy, which I think we have to say. I'm not saying don't say that, because that that matters to a certain segment of people. I think we have to start belittling him for the for the narcissistic again, just weak man, he really is, because that is his superpower in the base. And I think we have to begin to expose that. So I think the lack of character thing just came from, you know, people like him, people like Santos, just having no shame, and saying that they have no shame, in essence, on behalf of people. I mean, what do you what do you think on it? Because that's, that's what I've been like, kind of playing around with is this idea that, when you play him up to be this threat, that's actually working in his favor in a certain segment.
0: Well, fear is a contagion, and it's something that I write about. You can go back and really, I think, look at Pope uh, John Paul II as a guide and a model on his inaugural visit to Poland, which is a visit that geopolitically sets in motion events that within a decade, contribute mightily to the fall of the the Berlin Wall. And so what does John Paul say to confront communism uh, in Polish to his native Poles who have been subjugated at that point since 1939? What he says to them uh, is, be not afraid. Um, In the tradition of fearlessness, um, Franklin Roosevelt talked about this. Freedom from fear, freedom uh, from want, uh, the contagion of fear, its capacity to spread panic. So, when the country hears its vice president go on The View and deliver a message that says, I'm scared as heck, it's worrying because the moment calls for defiance against the real threat. And so there are two things in my view that that you just hit bingo on and and the first one is how you fight trump which is through mockery and sarcasm and belittlement and everything that you can think of that diminishes him but i want to put that aside for a minute we'll we'll come back to the we'll come back to the politics but when you look at the country, and and I think you rightly diagnosed right this character change. I mean, he is he is more than any male uh, that exists in the culture. He he's the antithesis of the iconic male of the black and white movies we grew up with: John Wayne, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, right silent, tough, Jimmy Stewart, right? I mean, he is an appalling figure, needy, whiny, complaining, soft, evasive, dishonest, right? Every conceivable character flaw. But what does it say about the country that they're susceptible to it? Two, what does it say about the Democratic Party that if the election were tomorrow, even money is Joe Biden loses the election to him. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's a great question. I, I look, so we have to be honest about how we got to this place, which is, and I can I can say because there's there's moments when I and I think every man out there has felt this at some point, which is, you know. We talk about the value of of feminine traits, the value of women, and we have in the last number of years pushed aside men and said, masculinity is toxic. And I'm not saying like masculine, I mean, I'm not, it's a whole messy debate, but what happens is if you're a white male living in the Midwest and you get hit with these constant messages of toxic masculinity, I mean, what was it? Uh, one of the shaving companies, Gillette, put out like, some one minute ad about, you know, oh, is this the best we are? You know, that kind of stuff. Some of that makes sense because there is, there's such thing as toxic masculinity. Let's be clear. You see this particularly in the MAGA movement, but there's also healthy masculinity. And I think what's happened is over time, that's been kind of pushed aside. Men particularly have been pushed aside in, in men's minds. True or not, I don't know, but they've been pushed aside. And then somebody came along and spoke to that fear and reflected that fear back to them. So this is the thing about fear, like politicians harness fear, and sometimes it's in good ways. You know, fear of communism, fear of unemployment, fear of, you know, uh, racial and social inequity. Those are those are true fears, um, and I think a politician has to harness that. And politicians in the past, by and large, also knew that their that that power that they were harnessing came with great, as as Spider-Man said, great power comes great responsibility. And so I guess it was his uncle that said that. But anyway, you know, they understood that they had a responsibility to use fear, but then bring back optimism. When Donald Trump came along and his toxic MAGA base, and they simply reflect the fear that you already have in your heart back to you or the anger you have and say, you should be angry. Like that's how you pull people in. That's how cults work. That's how dictatorships get built. They create that fear. If you think about fear, everybody has fear. There's nobody on here that doesn't have fear. We all have fear, okay? And what we do is we try to confront that. We also have darkness in our heart, every one of us. And every day we have a battle in our heart between the light and the dark. And when a leader comes along, like Trump, okay, President of the United States, for God's sakes, for four years, when he comes along and he speaks back to you the darkness in your heart, And he says, you know, your fear of of immigrants, it's real. Your fear of minorities, it's real. Your fear of being excluded, it's real. When somebody with power speaks the dark parts of your heart, it gives you permission to let that overtake you. And as we all know, letting the darkness overtake you is much easier than fighting. Um, It kills you, but it's much easier in the moment. So I, I... is that am I getting deep in the weeds? Yes. Does it make sense to some of you? Maybe not. And I'm sorry about that. But that's the best way I can describe. Is there's this, there's been this like harvesting of people's fears going on and people's darkness going on, and there's been nothing to then root that fear into positive action. You know, we always said this was said early on by Arthur Brooks, who I know you know well, and and I do too. Great guy. He would always say. Uh, until it was disproven by Trump. He's like, leaders you know, leaders do well by fighting, but fighting up and punching on behalf of people. Donald Trump came along and he punches down and he punches against people. He doesn't fight for Americans, he fights Americans. And some people like that, unfortunately, and that's grown. And there, the other big problem, Steve, is that nobody in the Republican Party, with rare exception, stands up to him. So when he gets indicted and everybody says, oh yeah, he's a victim, of course then, everybody that trusts these people are gonna say he's a victim. When Nikki Haley's saying he's a victim, he's a victim, right, and and because somebody like me, Liz Cheney, or you goes out on a limb and says the truth, you can get ostracized because that's what cults do and it's a cult.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you, and and I think this is, and I wanna preface this by busting this question, there's no judgmentalism whatsoever on on my part about it you voted for Trump in 2020 right when you looked at Trump in 2020 were you driven by a party loyalty by a gravitational pull you just can't do it on the on the d side Do you look at Biden and just say in that moment, like, I, there's no difference between the two. One of the things that I said in September of that year, I said, I I predicted what, what happened, happened two months before the election. And I said, when I predicted it, that we're going to find out who. Will cross the Rubicon with him. It's the place from which there's no return. The denial of an election result will spark violence. And so we all have a moment in time. And, you know, I think that when you talked about the confrontation of darkness and light, the way that I've talked about it in my political career is. That you're at the highest levels of politics, you find yourself in this constant contest between kind of cynicism and idealism, right? These like these two forces will meet, right? You'll grapple with them, and what you may rationalize as idealistic in a in a moment or or not um, not not so transactionally bad, right? You can you can look back on with some perspective. You know, later on, and say and say, "Wow, because all of this, uh, as you're involved in it, is very is very, very cloistering. But take us inside the room, where you're with your colleagues after January sixth. And it's clear. And you're a person who is in good standing in the sense that you stayed with the party, you were critical of him transactionally, but you say this was a coup attempt. Mm-hmm. Well what 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 happens in when 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 you when you say that? inside the room to your to your to your colleagues like what what is the response to that
1: so it's interesting i'll answer that and then i want to get back to the 2020 vote because i think it's important um when i say when i say that look at the time i'll be honest i didn't think there was any chance that we wouldn't wake up from that moment any i mean like I you know I started country first right after that my my country first not yours but same thing because I was like okay we have to fight to restore the GOP and and I thought I mean if I had to put my money on it it would be this will be a winning argument because we just had an insurrection right there's dead cops um and and but in hindsight I look at it and I'm like you know What I saw in those eyes when I would say to people, I'd stand up at the conference, which is when we're all together, and I'd say, uh, this is BS. This was a coup attempt. This was X, Y, Z. We've got to move on this. We have to impeach him. We have to do the 25th Amendment. I, I wouldn't see disagreement in people's eyes. In fact, you'd kind of see agreement, but I saw fear, and it was fear and silence. The silence was, okay, Adam, I may agree with you, but I want to see where this is going because... We've been down this path before where we took on Trump and lost, and my job that pays $174,000 a year, and I still have to pay for my place to live in D.C., um, for some reason is worth it to these people. You know, you're on the road half your life, don't get to see your family, but for some reason that title, that identity is so worth it to people, so I saw fear, but I still thought we had a chance until three weeks later when Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago and that man I'll tell you what on a dime that shifted everybody they knew it it's like yep you're right he's gonna win and he won because it was predetermined they predetermined that he was gonna win so he won so that's why he's in charge of the party so on the 20 on, on the 2020 vote it's the one that well there's a couple things particularly in the book I talk about that that you know I wish I could go back and take back of course my vote in 2020 is one of them But I think it's important to talk about why. So I didn't vote for him in 2016. I'm the only guy in America that didn't vote for him in 16 and did in 20. But that 16 not voting for him vote, I think, is why I did in 20, because the pressure that came on me for four years from my party for not voting for him and being public about it was tough to bear. I mean, every time I would be in a Republican circle in my constituents, it's like they'd remind me you didn't vote for him. You're not faithful. You're not loyal. And I convinced myself that since I lived in Illinois and Biden was going to win Illinois anyway, I didn't want to lie about who I voted for. So I'm like, I'll just vote for him. He's going to lose Illinois. And I can put away this like thing about I'm not supportive enough. But that night is when everything changed when he, uh, I think his first thing was the tweet that said, like, stop counting the votes or it's being stolen or whatever it was. And that's when I'm like, I'm off. And why do I, why did I say that? Because I have been, and you know you know foreign policy as well as I do, I've been to many places of struggling democracies, and I know that once you break the faith in the system, okay, nobody has to agree on anything. You don't have to agree on, you don't have to agree on, I mean, anything, literally. That's what actually politics is, be- is because of. We don't agree on stuff. But you do have to agree to play by the rules in the election. The rules are, you can vote if you're eligible, person that gets the most vote wins and they get t- have a certain amount of power for a certain amount of time that's the rules that's it donald trump convinced half of the country almost half of the country that that system was broken and when he did that i don't see democracy surviving if a considerable number of americans truly believe the system doesn't work because all of a sudden now you're voiceless in your mind in the government and voiceless governments get have revolutions they have civil wars and I knew that this was the moment where I would have to look at myself in the mirror. I had a kid coming, I knew soon. And uh, I, you know, look, I, I mean, I w- we ask 19, 20 year olds to die for their country, right? And we, we have to have that. It's a sad reality in a fallen world, but we have to have that. How effing dare I put my political career above the country if I'm asking a young person to die for their country? And the people that do that daily, should be ashamed of themselves. And they are, in my mind, disqualified from serving in office. And they will someday, I hope, on their deathbed, and I hope before that, realize what traitorous garbage they are to this country. When we ask 18-year-olds to die, and they'll go to these funerals and salute the flag, get their picture taken, the congressman came to the funeral, great. And then we need you to vote this way because uh, Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to democracy. I, I can't do that. I'll lose my primary. Screw you.
0: Now, one of the things that you pointed out, I I saw it on CNN, and I think you should get a medal for this. Hmm. Um, You criticized the Democratic National Committee for attacking uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson, who meets the standards that we think about when we reflect on John Kennedy and profiles in Courage. Knew he was not going to be the Republican nominee, but a two-term governor, deputy homeland secretary, uh, head of the DEA, serious person, accomplished person, um, trudged it out for the sake of telling the truth. And putting it putting it into the record. And he's mocked, disparaged by what should be the hub of a political opposition, right? That nobody disputes should be anchored by the Democratic Party. We live in a two-party system, one of them is gone, but needs more people than its base in order to defeat Trump. And so when When you look at the situation electorally as someone who's politically homeless, do do you feel disdain from the from the from the left a we don't want you as part of the coalition? Does that worry you? Does it worry you in terms of, you know, how they talk about? you know other parts of the country people in it you know and one of the things I, I I was saying to someone you know the other day about some of the issues you know around the Democratic Party um and it's and its incapacities to reach you know certain elements of the of the electorate um you know I started getting a lecture on what other people's economic interests were and I and I just said to them how many welders and plumbers and pipe fitters do you think work at the Democratic National Committee Mm-hmm. right? Versus, versus woke Ivy league millennials um, who may be a bit out of touch with that working person in, in Ohio, dare I say. But when when you look at the, when you look at the political field right now and you contemplate catastrophe, you know, with 10 months to go, what What is it that you see, and specifically I want to ask, is there is there anybody off camera at CNN that you talk to who's bullish on Biden, Biden winning this election? Great question. I mean, first off, there
1: there are those that are bullish on Biden, and they can make a good point, which is, you know, once Trump's the nominee, people will, will be reminded about how insane he is. Like, may, maybe there's something to it. I don't know um on your bigger question look i'll say this I, I have noticed the democrats are far better at controlling their crazies and, and by the way there are crazies like all you have to look at is like hamas sympathizers and that i mean that to me is unbelievable but the republican party has russian sympathizers right now I mean, for God's sakes, and there's almost Hamas sympathy there too because they're who all running. Like,
0: who are running the party, right? Right. I mean, yes, and that's the difference. How many? And, how many nuts do you think are in? How many people do you put in the Democratic Party nut basket? Right. What's <laughs> what's the count? Right. Is it? Is it? Is it? What is it? Twelve people?
1: Yeah, I'd say that's yeah. In the in Congress, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd say it's it's your it's your Ilan Omar's and you know Rashida Tlaib's. And you talk to Democrats, and they don't like them either. And uh, they don't necessarily condemn them publicly, right? Let's be clear. They kind of do the what the Republicans did with Trump. Now, here's my warning, since we're doing the warning here. My warning is this. So like what the DNC put out, it was a staff hit job, and it's leadership that the chief of staff to Joe Biden called Asa to apologize. Trump would never do that. That's leadership. My concern is that there's this temptation to say, okay, the Republicans and Donald Trump do this. We have to match that with this over here in the Democratic version of it. Look, and I understand it because that's the temptation. They're getting away with this. Screw them, we're going to do this. Now, let me give you a fair warning. It's not how you win a winning coalition, but it also, we need to have one party that's mature. We need to have one party that still can fight tooth and nail, but can stay above the fray on some of this this garbage. Now, that doesn't mean you don't attack Trump like he attacks you. You do. But like a guy who got a half a percent in the primary, you're going to celebrate him exiting by making fun of him? That's dumb. And again, to Biden's credit, they, they reached out. So in terms of how do I feel in the party, look, I just did a book tour, and I'll tell you – My biggest fans are on the left and I appreciate it. And I've realized I'm probably closer now to the Democrats on foreign policy because my party's so far gone. I've rethought a number of issues because you can kind of come out of that tribe. Um, But it is going to be important to understand that this year is going to have to be an uneasy and a gross feeling coalition of people that don't agree on policy. I'm talking big stuff like abortion or whatever. You know, how many people have you heard, Steve, that say, yeah, uh, you you know, if you're pro-life, you're as big of a threat to this country as Donald Trump. Okay, I've heard people say that. That's not true. A significant part of the country is pro-life. I get it. We're all passionate about abortion issues. It's not an issue that really tunes me up, but whatever. But Donald Trump is an existential threat. And that's why we have to have this coalition. So fight Trump tooth and nail. But welcome people like politically homeless, disaffected Republicans, because that's how you're going to win. Otherwise, I'm going to tell you the concern at the, you know, behind in the rooms at CNN about people that think Joe Biden's, you know, in trouble is he's just not showing the fight, the vigor. And, you know, a lot of these Republicans are still saying like Governor Sununu just said, for God's sakes, like, I'm going to vote for Trump if he's a nominee. Oh, great. That's cool. Ritzger, my governor, said the other day, you know, there's no difference between Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. It's just if you want, you know, lifts in your boots or you want high heels. Ha ha, funny. He's running for president in 28. He's playing to the base. But I'm going to tell you, a Nikki Haley Republican is not a threat to the country. A Trump Republican is. And we need to get that straight.
0: And it is a threat to the country. No, no doubt. No doubt about it. But- one of the things that people say, and this will be the last question before I turn over to lisa bring the bring the audience in is that there's this talk that if Trump wins, that democracy goes away like the lights go off sometime right, an instant afternoon on january twentieth twenty twenty five and that that's not what's gonna happen um. We have we have ninety four thousand uh, elected governments in the United States. Uh, they all have lawyers. This is the most sophisticated society that has ever existed uh, in all of all of recorded history. Um, I'm not I'm not sure it's killable, um, but 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 I but I also don't have a lack of imagination about the danger. But my my question is. If he invokes the Insurrection Act, does the military regard that as a lawful order to send armor out of gates at bases into American cities? And what happens, because I'll be there, when there's 5,000 Americans in front of the gates where the tanks roll out man what you're
1: asking is a is a serious question and it's a serious concern now how would i see that playing out trump invokes the insurrection act inevitably he's not just going to invoke it to invoke it it'll have some false flag or you know something some riot in some city that'll allow him to do it he could do it for any reason really i mean it's a it's a unique power the president has um I don't think the military would disobey that order because, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the military swears an allegiance to the constitution, not to the president, which is true. And for 200 some years, that's actually been a huge point of pride. And I think it's a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but the problem is commitment to the constitution is up for debate. Like, what is that? So imagine Trump gives an order and imagine you have a a commander that disobeys that order. And then what does Trump do? He can relieve the commander and find somebody that believes that they're following the Constitution. And then every, you know, private or specialist will have to make a decision. Do they want to go AWOL? And, and they won't. Now, would they fire on American citizens? I don't think so. You know, I, I mean the Chinese military struggled to fire at Tiananmen Square. So I don't think you'll see that. But in terms of deployment, show of force, things like that, you know, what happens if. Let's say this just completely false scenario, but hopefully, let's say yeah. Donald Trump loses the election and somehow then declares himself the winner. Let's say he'd have done this in twenty twenty because he would have had the power of the presidency. The Supreme Court could shoot him down and say, "No, you're not the president." He refuses to leave the White House. Say Donald Trump could go on the air and say to every member serving in the military, "You know, you need to disobey." your commanders, if they're stopping you, you made a commitment to the Constitution. The Constitution declares that I'm legally elected. You are on my side. Or conversely, if Donald Trump is running and loses and claims it was a false election, I could see him getting on TV and telling the military, the election's being stolen from me. You need to disobey orders. You need to defect. You need to come over to our side. Is it crazy? Kind of. Is it realistic? It is, sadly. And that's a concern I have. The military is only as good as the people in it. And uh people are being convinced that the Constitution is something that it's not or it's not something that it is. And uh so yeah, take it seriously and you know I, I worry about that.
0: Do you think do you think that JP Pritzker or Gavin Newsom have the spine and wherewithal to operate in a situation like that? For example, uh the president federalizes Illinois National Guard troops. Uh, The governor of the state says, belay that to his adjutant general. It's an illegal and unconstitutional um, order. And in fact, if federal troops come into Illinois, arrest them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could see something like that happening in that kind of a scenario. And in theory, you know, in theory, the National Guard, once it's federalized, if they disobey the order to be federalized, and now they're they're technically in violation of the constitution or the commander in chief. And you're now in an essence open rebellion at that point. So I don't know how that goes, but it's unique. I mean, keep in mind the entire, and I'm a national guardsman, the entire guard is funded by the federal government. So it's a militia, yes, but it's a militia that was never built to disobey the federal government. It was, it was built to be under control. And I think rightly. Um, But I could also see the president, for instance, federalizing blue or red states, depending on what that president is about. I mean, you saw this in the border when, you know, Nome Christy Nome, who's a huge disappointment, uh, you know, sent her guard to the border because she's a red state and literally only red states were going to the border. And to to their discredit, blue states were not, were choosing not to go to the border, which is also annoying. Um, But yeah, you can start seeing the guard playing the politics role. I just saw some tag or some leader of the National Guard in Alabama resigned because of the vaccine stuff. It's like, I really think he probably got a job at United Airlines and wanted to go out this way because he'll still get his pension. But that's the kind of crap we're going to start seeing.
0: And with that, turn it over to you, Lisa.
1: Thank
2: you. Um, So first question uh, for you, Congressman. How do you convince people close to you who are still Trump supporters about the dangers of him being reelected?
1: You know, it's a great question. And look, I'll say this you probably can't. I mean, ultimately, they're going to have to convince themselves. I mean, look, they're. Go you know at them be...
0: and tell them they're stupid. <laughs> yeah, um... <laughs> tell them tell them they
1: <laughs> um, I just, I mean, I saw yesterday Jamie Dimon ceo of visit jp morgan or citibank whatever one of the big bank JP guys morgan. jp morgan he came out and said basically trump's right about nato trump this trump like praising trump and i'm like sitting here shocked and i'm I'm realizing probably he's trying to cover himself too because he's it's, it's like a dictator when when the dictator takes control you everybody's trying to kiss his butt so they don't get you know hit um but i think with family and friends it's like look there is real benefit in just showing love to people and trying to do it outside of the politics thing. Um, They're misled. They have to come to that realization on their own. If you look up stuff about how to deprogram cult members, I think it's actually very applicable here. And so that would be my advice is just try to love them, try to stay away from the politics, stay out of it. By the way, stay out of a, a toxic relationship. There's a lot of toxicity in this, You don't need that. So you don't have to make up with somebody like that. I had half my family on my dad's side disown me. Um, and I have no desire to make up with them. I've forgiven them for myself, but I have no desire to make up with them. So I think that's it. Uh, otherwise, if you do get into an argument, try to be respectful, listen to them. Because when people feel heard, they'll listen to you. That would be my suggestion.
2: And you know, recognizing that it's probably unrealistic to change MAGA Republicans' uh views. What about those Republicans who are only supporting him because he's Republican?
1: Right. And this is there's a lot of people like this. Here's the interesting thing. Politics, you know, 20 years ago, actually nobody really gave a crap what your politics was. I mean, I had neighbors that were Democrats and I never even we'd make fun of each other jokingly because they'd put out like a Clinton sign and we'd have a Bush sign out or whatever, you know, but it, it didn't lead to any broken relationships. It was just kind of a a fun rivalry. Um, what's happened is we've made our politics a tribal identity. It's an identity. It used to be, our identity used to be, I'm an American, and you know, we're fighting the Russians or we're fighting Al Qaeda or whatever but we don't have that right now and our identity is i'm a republican or i'm a democrat or for half of the country right now including myself i'm politically homeless i'm independent um and so republicans have to feel free to break from that identity you know it's it's i think part of it is understanding that democrats or independents are not evil right that's one thing i learned even on my trip i never thought democrats were evil i want to be clear about that but like when i was doing my book tour. Democrats were so nice to me. And I realized they do love the Constitution. I realized they do want a strong American military, which I was always convinced the Democrats just wanted to surrender everywhere everywhere in the world. And that's a big driving force for me as American strength. So I think this is a, a good advice to fellow Demo- to Democrats on here is if you have a Republican that fits that category, um, welcome them. You know, Let them know they're welcome into a different identity or try to get people healthy and and not, you know, find their identity in politics. For God's sakes, making a friend based on what they believe politically is actually the stupidest way to make a friend. I like drinking beer with people. I don't give a rat's backside what your politics is, unless you're a hardcore Trumper and then I really don't want to be around you, but that's just <laughs> personal. <laughs>
2: Um, I'm going to ask both of you this question, but Steve, I'll get you to answer first. Do you think that the former Republican Party can and will be resurrected once again?
0: I go back and forth on this question, right? Um, At some level, it's too big to fail. It's the third oldest political party in the world, Democratic Party, is the oldest. Um, I think that the party that is in more grave danger of not surviving is the Democratic Party. I, I don't think that there's enough conversation that contemplates what happens if Donald Trump becomes the 47th president of the United States. For sure. It will break up the two party system because no one who claims to be an authority in the Democratic Party, there will be no authority. No one will have any moral authority whatsoever because they will have all defended really the acclamation of an 82 year old candidate who goes on to lose to Trump despite all the warnings. And what it will do is it will create a third party movement. I mean, there will be a third party candidate. On the on the ballot in twenty twenty eight, like full on from the beginning, um, I'll be part of that effort if it if it came to that. Um, you know, I, but the Republican Party right right now is the home to a malevolence that has always existed in American life. It has transited back and forth between the parties. Um, it's manifested itself in something called the Confederacy, in something called the Boond, in something called the Ku Klux Klan, and something called white nationalism. And I think that force will never be extinguished. Our great grandchildren will be dealing with it. The big mistake of my career politically was a belief, I think born in the era that I came of age in, born in 1970, 30 years old at the millennia. And it was this notion that history was over, the contest had ended, liberal democracies had prevailed, and we were at the edge, we were at the edge of the just society really. Uh, unlimited progress, a technological utopianism uh, and optimism around technology, and it's all turned to dust. And so I think that there is a constant battle that is always being fought, always has been fought, and always will be fought. And we're in a cycle right now where we're very, very close to losing something fundamental and important uh, because of apathy, and for a lot of different reasons, and so I'm not sure either of these parties survive. Maybe both survive. Maybe we're at the moment of breakage. I, I just, but but my instinct tells me that it that it is all dependent on the outcome of this election.
1: Yeah, I,
2: I agree. Your with, thoughts, Congressman?
0: I agree with literally everything you said. There's
1: there, and I'm it's not just because we're the mutual admiration society here. I just I truly believe everything you said. And and by the way, I'll also say like while you were talking, I'm looking at some of the people on this, and just like it is heartening to me, and I mean that almost emotionally, just to see so many of you interested in this and and sharing our concerns. Cause I'll tell you, and I'm sure Steve's felt this before, and I'm sure many of you have. Sometimes you feel isolated and alone, and sometimes you wonder, am I getting it wrong because so many people are crazy? And, and just seeing many of your faces has been encouraging because I'm sure you share a lot of the same feelings. So I just want to thank you for that. But the, without repeating what you said, I'll, I'll just add a couple of points. Number one, inherent structure. So that the structure that's built into the election system that advantages Republicans and Democrats in the two-party system is massive. Uh, to get on the ballot as a Republican in Illinois, I needed 800 petition signatures. If I would have won, wa- and I'd considered this at one point, I didn't really want to stay in Congress. I did 12 years. I was done anyway, even without January 6th. But I I, I was dealing with, do I want to run again just to prove it? And, uh, and you know, deal with those issues. And one of the things I looked at is, do I want to run as an independent? Maybe I'll just, I'll quit the Republican Party and run as an independent. 800 petition signatures to get on the ballot as a Republican? something like 10,000 to get on as an independent. And by the way, everybody that signed as the 10,000, which is impossible, by the way, but they could have, none of them could have ever voted in a Republican or Democratic primary. So now you have to get low propensity voters that have never voted in a primary. You need 10,000 of them. You actually need 20,000 because they're going to challenge your petition signatures. The point is the structure is so inherently unfair that I think the idea of a third-party movement is possible because there's going to be enough people that feel politically unrepresented in 2028 that they will come together and break that kind of monopoly that's going on. Um, but that said, the only po- the point of optimism I'm going to throw out there that is a possibility is that 2028 could be, and I, I, th- I do think it depends on 2024 to an extent, 2028 could be actually um, the beginning of a new American century because there's gonna be a lot of new energy. And if there is energy in the GOP that is not Nazi, and they can somehow win, or, and they can, you know, like political movements come in waves and you don't know they happen until they're over. Like, it's like why we were all shocked the day after the election in 2016. I think there's a real hunger, hunger in America for optimism. Let's say a Ronald Reagan or an Obama in terms of how they speak. And if somebody can come along and grasp that, that may change the trajectory. But otherwise, I agree with Steve. It's going to be dangerous. I believe that this, I now understand what the what role the brown shirts played in the Nazi Party, for instance, which I never understood until about eight years ago. I understand how that worked now because it's happening in our system in the GOP.
2: So I love the optimism around 28. You both referenced the possibility of third party in 28. Let's though talk about 24 and no labels. Do you believe, Congressman, that uh, no labels helps or
1: hinders Trump? You know, I struggle with this because, on the one hand, I generally believe that everybody should have a candidate that they want to vote for, but I also know. Look, here's the reality: no labels cannot become president because all you have to know is how the how our system works let's say it's Joe Manchin, let's say he wins 10 states, which is almost unthinkable, but let's say he wins 10 states, what does that do? Only thing that does is deny 270 votes to anybody in the electoral college, which then sends it to the house to vote on who the president is. Uh, I, I don't see any way any candidate gets 270 vote, electoral votes with no labels right now. I actually think third party movements need to start in Congress. They actually need to start on the elections that nobody pays attention to, which is part of the reason that haven't ever really gotten taken off, because you need to have members in Congress that can cut deals then or actually affect an electoral college outcome if you have a third party running. Um, But again, I'm sympathetic to the fact that everybody should have somebody they want to vote for. And it feels like this year is not going to be that. So I I think it's going to hurt Biden more than it hurts Trump. But I also have heard a good case that it hurts Trump, too, because, you know, all these Republicans that are kind of defaulting back to Trump because they have nowhere else to go, maybe this will pull them. But I just don't know if that breaks that identity.
2: Congressman, last question for you, and then I'm going to turn it over to Steve to wrap up. Um, You talked about the fact that you had already decided before January 6th not to run for re-election. So what do you see as your future? would you Um, ever consider re-entering politics?
1: So if you'd have asked me a year ago, would you ever get back into politics, I would have told you no. Because, I mean, look, the last two years of my time in Congress was really brutal. And I mean, imagine imagine really like even your friends in the house that are, they don't want to be seen talking to you on the floor because they're afraid that's going to get out, right? Um, And I didn't realize the toll it took until about summer of this year. I was... it really had hit me what, what damage it did and that I had to recover from that. And I needed to work through that. And I think I'm in a good spot now, but I, you know, I live in Texas now and uh, you know, my brand of Republican is not very good here, not very strong. Um, But I would be open to running again now. I mean, that, that, that energy is coming back, but it's not, it's weird because it's, it's for the first time, it's not really an energy because I want to be somebody you know, when I ran for Congress, like I, I did it for the right reason, but I, I, my you know, ego is a huge part of that. I wanted to be a congressman. This is like, it's more the thing that excites me is this idea of like being on, like if I ran for president in 28, for instance, like being on the stage and just being free to say whatever I want and not have to be Nikki Haley trying to be all things to all people and just representing a section of people that just feel like there's nobody speaking for them and a generation of people that feel like there is nobody that's coming up with new ideas. We talk about income inequality, we've raised taxes and we've cut taxes. We still have income inequality. Something else will work. I don't know what it is, but somebody has the answer. We need all of that new energy to come forward, and I think if we can get to, if 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 it takes me to help harness that energy, I could see myself running again in that case. But I don't have a grand plan. I'm not sitting around plotting and planning. But I am really excited about like this idea. I just, I, without being able to explain, do to, to the very short. Like I just feel like we need to break the entire political system and remake it. I feel like we need to break, not remake it into something. We need a democracy and a republic. But break how we think about things, like abortion, which I, I'm going to bring up. It's not pro-life against pro-choice. There's actually a hundred different viewpoints on abortion. It's actually a hundred different viewpoints on guns. We've been programmed by the man, by the matrix to believe everything has two sides. It doesn't. Like everything has a hundred sides. How do we harness that and not just have to belong to a party that we have to fit into this box in anymore? We just be independent and we do what we want to do. And we let politics work how it should. That's my answer.
2: So I feel like, There needs to be a second uh, edition of this conversation. Yeah,
1: that would be great. I love it. Talk about the breaking of
2: the system and how to uh, to rebuild. So thank you, Steve. I will turn things over to you
0: to wrap up. Well, let me thank you, Lisa. And thank you, everybody, for getting on tonight and for participating. And thank you to Adam. And let me just say in closing that it's just not true that there are no exceptional public servants. There are a lot of them. And you got to spend an hour with one of them uh, through his military service, his congressional service, and you know what will be more chapters of public service ahead. Um what what I would say to everybody tonight about this moment and to remember is that we live in a very resilient country uh, that has been tested many, many times and has survived many hours of doubt and faithlessness and dark nights. And the dawn has always broken in the United States. And that courage and honor and valor and all of the worthy virtues, though unreported, are still very much present in our in our country, and therefore adjacent to our politics. So, it's going to be a wild ten months. Um, I encourage everybody to go read uh, Adam's autobiography, Renegade, uh, to follow Adam Kinziger on uh, Substack, and you can catch him on CNN, uh, where he is one of the ablest political commentators out there on the circuit today but until next time everybody thank you very much thank you guys thank you